0: Morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew in front of you. We're continuing on in our study through the book of Acts. We finished up chapter 7 last week and I had this really nicely summed up uh, introduction uh, to you know, what we went through last week, and then I looked at the length of my sermon today, and I think I'm just going to give you a really, really summed up version. What we saw last week was Stephen was martyred uh, because of his ministry for the gospel. He went before the Sanhedrin, and they didn't like what he had to say, and they killed him, and we were introduced to Saul who will eventually become the Apostle Paul. And that is a much more cut-down version than what I had. Uh, but I think you'll thank me for that um, when this is over. Uh, but first, I want to I open this up with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity that we have together to come before you, to worship you, to sing your praises, to open up your word. And Lord, as we study about your servant Philip, I pray that we would be people who have a heart like his. I pray that we would be people who, when we experience persecution, that we would take that as an opportunity to push your gospel out to the nations and make you known to people who haven't previously heard the name of Jesus. And Lord, as we go through this passage today, there's a lot going on here. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to hear it and change anything that you may lay on it. Today, Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so I just did you all a favor. I just turned two pages of my notes right there. Only 14 more to go. All right, so here we go. You guys ready? We're going to read chapter 8, verses 1 to 8 this morning. It says, On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So on that day, so we're still in the time when Stephen was martyred. So on that day, severe persecution broke out against the church. So at the stoning of Stephen, it was as though a dam broke, all right, and a flood of pent-up anger that had been building up against the church just unleashed itself. The people who were against Christianity, they finally been able to turn the tide of public opinion against the church, and once that tide of public opinion turned, they were able to go after the church with a vengeance, and so we see, at this point, it's open season on anyone who follows Christ. Luke tells us that Saul is ravaging the church. The word ravage is meant to convey a brutal and sadistic attack. All right. It's so quick in the book of Acts that we don't, we don't even think about it. When he says ravaging the church, I mean, we... We have a tendency to to overemphasize things in our culture like we are so obsessed with this and I I can't live without that. I absolutely love this. And so when we see that Paul is ravaging the church, I mean, it just we just blow right past it. But in the original language, what this is saying is that he is brutally and sadistically attacking the church. Saul is caught up in religious zeal. He is so caught up in it that he's acting out these sinful desires that have probably been building up in him since the way which they will come to be known has come into existence and he's hurting people and he's throwing them in jail and later in the book of acts we're going to see that Saul's zeal often led to the deaths of those he was persecuting so it's not just kicking in doors and dragging people off to prison he's including murder in this. And he's doing all of this while believing that God is happy with him for the way that he's destroying these people's lives. This is obviously not the case, but when people get in this frame of mind and they get that taste for blood, figuratively speaking, I hope, they can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. And that's what we see Saul doing here. He's wrecking shop on the church. And so in the face of this persecution, the church flee Jerusalem in order to find safety for themselves and their family. Luke says that everyone except for the apostles scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And so we're talking thousands of people. Thousands and thousands of people have fled Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside. Um, But make sure that you take notice of what they're doing as they go. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 says that wherever the flight from this violence takes the church, these people are preaching the word of God along the way. So as they're running for their life, we see normal people facing horrific circumstances, and yet as they're fleeing from their lives, they're making it a point to share the gospel with the people that they meet along the way. I mean, this is a terrible situation for God's people. I mean, it's terrible. People are dying. People are going to jail. Children are losing their family. But God uses it positively to impact the sphere of influence for the church. This is Romans 18 through 8, 18 through 30, happening in real time. Right Romans 8:18 8, says that the sufferings of this world are not worthy of comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. All right so we see this suffering this suffering is very real. It's very bad. And then Paul goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness as he intercedes on our behalf. We experience this stuff we don't know how to pray. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf in our weakness, and then verses 28 through 30 says this, "We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What the church is experiencing is awful. But God uses it to spread the message of the gospel to several places that Jesus mentioned in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Y'all remember that? It's been a month or two since we were there. But do you remember what he said? Jesus said that the early disciples will be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when persecution hits, the church scatters. And where do they go? They go to Judea and Samaria and they're taking their witness with them. Right, They're taking their witness with them and what's interesting is that as we continue on with this narrative of the early church, eventually their own persecutor, right, Saul, right now spoken of as Saul, we will see him known as Paul later. He's going to come to faith himself and then he will take the gospel to the ends of the earth as it's known at this time. I mean, this is God working all things together for the good of those who love him. And all things work together for his purpose and according to his plan. Now, he doesn't want this persecution to happen to the church, but he's going to use this persecution to make sure that the nations get to hear about the gospel. In all of this and the sharing of this gospel, Luke highlights the work of a man named Philip. And we don't know much about Philip except that he was one of the seven men that the church had chosen to serve the hellenistic jews in acts chapter 6. so we know that philip must have been a man of good reputation he must have been a man who was full of the holy spirit and he must have been a man who was full of wisdom that was the characteristics of the men that the apostles wanted for this role and he was one of those men so here again If no one knows anything else about you, and they know these three things about you, that you have good reputation, you're full of the Holy Spirit, and that you're full of wisdom, then you have lived your life well. This is something that we should all strive for. It's something that we should all be known for as believers in Christ. And so we see this amazing man, when persecution hits, we see him do something remarkable. He goes down to a city in Samaria. He proclaims the Messiah there. And because of the signs and wonders that he's doing, while the message is being proclaimed, the people are locked in. Right? The message is bolstered by the signs and wonders. Unclean spirits are being removed from people uh, that they've been possessing. There are people who have been paralyzed and lame. They're being healed. And there's great joy in the city. But... What's remarkable here, I keep saying it, I'm gonna keep saying it, is not the signs and wonders. All right? That's what most people get caught up in, right? They hear signs and wonders and, they're like, I would love, they think healings, that's amazing. I would love to see that. I would love to see people healed. And they think exercising demons, like, that's extraordinary. I don't wanna be anywhere near that. But if it's happening, that's awesome, right? I like to hear the stories of that. Let's make that happen somewhere else and then let me hear about it later. Right? I don't want to be anywhere near it. But this has been done, hasn't it? Right? We studied the book of Matthew. Jesus did this. It's been done already by the apostles. Stephen even did some of this in his ministry. And so this type of thing, while it's not a common part of our worship experience these days, it's happening quite a lot as the church makes its appearance on the scene for the first time. And so the amazing part of this is not the signs and wonders. No, what's amazing about this is where Philip chose to go to share his ministry. All right, he could have gone anywhere. Right? Persecution hits. He's got a blank slate. He could go anywhere. Philip chose to go to Samaria. He chose to go to Samaria. Jews didn't go to Samaria because Jews hated the Samaritans and the feeling was mutual. They hated each other. At this point in history, there had been hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans that had lasted a thousand years. That is a long time to hate somebody. For a thousand years, going all the way back to the 10th century B.C., When 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel broke off and they broke the monarchy. All right. 10 of them decided to go their own way. They defected and they decided to do their own thing. Two tribes stayed loyal to Jerusalem. All right. And the other 10 tribes, they made Samaria their new capital. All right. So this is one of the reasons why they hate them. There's bad blood between these people. Then, for several reasons that we're not going to get into this morning, the Samaritans started intermingling with foreigners. So the Samaritans have muddled this Jewish bloodline that they coveted so much. And now they are contaminated in the eyes of the Jews. The Jews look at the Samaritans and they think of them as half-breeds. I don't say that lightly. I don't like saying stuff like that. But that is what they thought of when they thought of Samaritans. They thought of them as half-breeds. And then the final straw that separated the Samaritans and the Jews for pretty much ever came in the 4th century B.C. when the Samaritans eventually built their own temple. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and then they rejected all of the Old Testament scriptures except for the Pentateuch. So everything except for the first five books of the Old Testament has been completely rejected By the Samaritans. So in the eyes of the Jews, you have a bunch of half-breed people who now have a half-breed religion. And they're despised. They're completely hated. And yet Philip follows in the footsteps of Jesus and he goes to the group of people who are supposed to be his enemies and he proclaims the gospel there. He chooses to go there, and he proclaims the gospel there. And because Philip came, and because he shared the gospel, there's great joy in the city. Amen, anybody. This is a notion that we need to consider more often. The gospel brings joy. It brings people back into relationship with God. It sets people free from slavery to their sin. It gives them new priorities, and it adds eternal meaning to their lives. And Philip brought that to the Samaritan people because he chose to love his enemies. One man in particular among the Samaritans catches Luke's eye in the retelling of this, these events, and it's a man named Simon. Let's read about him in verses nine to thirteen. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So we see a man named Simon who had some kind of power. We're not sure what that power was. We're not sure how significant it was. He may have had some kind of real supernatural abilities, Right? Think back to like when Pharaoh's people did the same kind of things that Moses was doing. Right? When you're tied in with the occult, when you've got connections with demonic forces, they give you abilities. They have power. And so he may have been doing some real supernatural stuff. Or maybe he was just a really good illusionist. And we don't know. We don't know. But he amazed the people in the city with what he was able to do. So no matter what it was... He fooled everybody around him, made them think that he had power, that he was someone from God. But when Philip showed up and he's doing these miraculous things and he proclaimed that Jesus was great, people stopped paying attention to Simon. People came to faith in Jesus and were baptized. And according to Luke, Simon came to faith as well. Or or did he? In verses 14 to 25, Luke tells about a confrontation that Peter ends up having, ends up having with Simon that puts a question mark on this for me. Right? And along with that, we're going to have a mystery regarding the Holy Spirit and the Samaritan. So let's look at that. We'll consider the mystery first because it occurs first in the passage. It says <clears throat> when the apostles who were at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god they sent peter and john to them after they went down there they prayed for them so that the samaritans might receive the holy spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them they'd only been baptized in the name of the lord jesus then peter and john laid their hands on them and they received the holy spirit when simon saw that the spirit was giving was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money saying give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told them, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So, verses 14 to 17 pose an interesting dilemma for the church. And it stems from this question. Does the Holy Spirit come to dwell in people at the moment of their salvation? And if so, if the answer to that question is yes, what happened to the Samaritans? All right. I would say yes, but then I have a big question mark here over the Samaritans. What happened here? Why were they not filled with the Holy Spirit immediately? Peter and John go down to Samaria to affirm what they have heard about this gospel spreading to the Samaritans. When they arrived, they realized that the Samaritans had believed in Christ. They had believed in the name of of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen. And so they prayed for them, and then they laid hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans. And so these couple of verses have caused theological Problems and quandary for the church for a long, long time. Because when we come to faith, the Holy Spirit does come to dwell in us. He does. But is that an immediate happening or does it happen sometime later? Well, most denominations believe that it's an immediate filling, right? The Holy Spirit comes in us at the moment of our salvation. But not all believe that, mainly because of what happens in these. Versus here in Acts. The Holy Spirit doesn't immediately fill the Samaritan. So, rhetorical question, what do you think? What what do you think happened here? There are a couple of theories. I'll listen for you. First, the first theory is that not all believers receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, and they must experience a different touching or anointing of the Holy Spirit later in their life. Oftentimes when this touching or anointing happens, it involves speaking in tongues, right? This is kind of a Pentecost moment, all right? Um, The people who believe this believe that you can be legitimately saved, you can come to saving faith, you are justified before the Lord, you just don't have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you. The only problem with that is the Bible, Okay? Um, the second one, some people will modify that a little bit, right? And they'll state that the Samaritans have been saved. They have a small measure of the Holy Spirit inside of them, but they just don't have the spiritual gifts. And I have no idea. Like this one is the least plausible out of the four that I have. Where do you get that from? Like you're grasping at straws at this point. Like there's no, there's nothing there to tie that to. Um, so that's a stretch. Number three, another option is that the Samaritans' faith is defective. Okay, possibly, maybe. Maybe they didn't actually believe. And therefore the Holy Spirit couldn't come until the faith was genuine and the the apostles came and they fixed it. They they fixed the defective faith. But I don't think any of those are are right. I think this fourth option uh, is the most likely and i think that the people who believe the three other options have misunderstood this narrative's place in church history okay um this is the first time that the gospel has moved outside of jerusalem without christ's presence all right so it moved outside of jerusalem while christ was walking the earth but this is the first time that it's been scattered without him on the earth he's ascended back into heaven so this is the first time That it's going out without Christ's presence pushing it along. Okay? On top of that, the gospel had gone to the Samaritans. Okay? The Samaritans. The people that we have hated for a thousand years. The Samaritans. And they're being saved. So it's a completely new situation. And a hated group of people to the Jews are coming to faith. So the human response... this, right? If you have a a person that you detest and someone said to you, that person came to faith in Christ, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? If this person has been cruel to you, has kicked your dog, stolen your car, written checks that they couldn't cash, all directed to you, and then someone comes to you and says, they came to faith, you'll go, yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And so the fourth option is that God, in his sovereign wisdom, waited to send the Holy Spirit so that the apostles could see it. The apostles could see the the Holy Spirit fall. They could confirm that the, the Samaritans did have faith, that they did have the Holy Spirit, and now they can go back to Jerusalem, this center for the church, and they can say, no, we saw it. No, the Samaritans have come to faith. There is, the gospel is running through the Samaritan community right now, and we are eyewitnesses to it. And that's so much more likely than the other three possibilities. And so with this confirmation, there can be no doubt among the church that the gospel is for the nations. Right? If the Samaritans can come to faith, then anybody can come to faith. The gospel moves people from enemies to brothers and sisters in Christ. So you no longer have this Jew-Samaritan divide. You have Jews and Samaritans worshiping God together. and It's amazing. And keep in mind, as we continue through Acts, this is not the last time we're going to see this situation. As we continue on in Acts chapter 11, there's going to be a Roman centurion named Cornelius who is going to come to faith as well. He and his entire household... And there's a whole mess of stuff that has to happen before Peter goes into that house. There's visions, there's dreams, all of this stuff has to come together to make sure that Peter actually will even go in the house. And so he goes in the house, he sees the Holy Spirit fall on this Gentile family, this Roman family, and then he catches flack for going into the Gentile house in Acts chapter 11 from the Jewish Christians. And so he goes in there and he explains all this long process that God took him through so that he could be an eyewitness of that situation. And God wants this apostolic confirmation. He wants people to know this is legit. The gospel is moving beyond the Jewish people. And so that's what we see here. The gospel is for all people, even for people like Simon the sorcerer. But unfortunately, it's possible that Simon didn't come to faith. When Simon sees the Holy Spirit being given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, he wants in on that power. He wants a taste of that. He wants it badly enough to pay them for it. And Simon's actions show that he has a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. Right. He is, he's thinking, like, this is the type of power that I, that I had before. Like an impersonal power that can be handed off or traded. Or if you say the right incantation, you have it in your tool belt at this point. What he doesn't understand is that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Right? This is God. Okay? This is not an impersonal force. This is God. He does what he wants when he wants, and the only people that he is subject to is God the Father and God the Son, and that's only because he voluntarily submits himself to their will. They are same in essence. There's nothing different about them, but he voluntarily lays down his role in that so that they can have tiered relationship. And so you don't rub the lamp and the Holy Spirit pops out. You don't control what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. All the money in the world cannot purchase your salvation or the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know, maybe I'm getting soft in my old age. But my first instinct here is to show Simon grace. Right? That's not common for me. I don't... (laughs) But my first instinct here is to show him grace. If he's a Christian, he's been a Christian for, what, a day? A week? Right? How much does he know? How much does he understand? I mean, who knows? But he's coming from a life where he either had real power or imagined power. He could really control this stuff, or people believed he could really control it. And suddenly, when Philip comes in and turns his life upside down, all that power goes away. Right? And he sees an opportunity to get back some of that power that's wielded by the apostles and he's ignorant enough in his knowledge to suppose that it's achievable by will or by payment or just strong enough desire. And so that's what he does. That's what he knows. Right. That's the world that he lived in before this came to be. And so he makes a go at receiving it. And so... In my heart, I want to look at this, I want to be like, dude, I get it. I understand where you're coming from. Like, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I still have sin struggles that I've had since I was eight years old when I came to faith, right? Selfishness, pride, like all that stuff constantly gets worked up in me. So when I see this in him and having been a Christian for maybe a week, like, I just want to extend grace, but Peter lays into him. He says, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. I mean, I'm not there. I don't know what was going on in Simon's heart or any of that. But, you know, we'll trust that Peter, through discernment of the Holy Spirit, knows what he's doing and he, as he sends out this stinging rebuke to Simon. And even though it's not the grace that I was instinctually willing to offer, it's still a wonderful gift from God. Right? A rebuke that points out our sin is a wonderful gift from God. A rebuke that gives us the opportunity to repent and turn from our sin is a wonderful gift from God. It gives him the opportunity to assess his heart and to turn away from this poisoned bitterness and that's bound up in wickedness. I mean, if we look back in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira didn't get this chance. What's the difference? Who knows? I mean, it could possibly be that Ananias and Sapphira planned out their deception, and so it was premeditated, and this is just ignorance on his part, and so God let him live. We don't know. But either way, there was a rebuke and an opportunity for change. Simon's offered the opportunity to make things right with God. And unfortunately, his response is certainly lacking if he is a believer. If he is a follower of Christ, what he says does not instill a lot of confidence in me that he understands anything about grace, that he understands anything about his sin. He doesn't even seem to act like he's done anything wrong. He asked Peter to pray to the Lord for him so that nothing he said would happen. This doesn't sound like someone who's remorseful. This doesn't sound like someone who believes that they're truly sinful and in need of restoration this doesn't sound like who wants to remain in God's favor now we don't earn God's favor by our behavior right that's all of Christ period we are saved by grace through faith period but Jesus says if you love me you'll keep my commandments Right? If we have a heart for God, then we're going to do everything in our power to move towards him in righteousness. And when we fall and fail, which is all the time, then we're going to do everything in our power to set that back right. And we don't see that in Simon at all. We don't see any evidence of that from Simon. And I hope that he got his heart right eventually. We're not going to see any more from him. I hope that we get to see that he made a full confession, true repentance, and that when we make it to heaven, there is Simon the sorcerer who understood the gospel at some point in his life and confessed that sin and made things right with God. But we don't know. This is where it ends. After all this happened, Peter and John make their way back to Jerusalem, and as they go, they preach the gospel in the villages to the Samaritans on their way back to Jerusalem. This is amazing. The gospel is for the nations, and they are being faithful to preach it everywhere they go. This is amazing. So what do we do with all of this? Number one, all right, four things. It's on your worship guide. Number one, persecution for the faithful is inevitable, is inevitable, all right? Persecution for the faithful is inevitable, but the mission of God is unstoppable. No force that has ever come out against the church has been successful and no church that will ever come out against the church will be successful. In fact, every time the church is persecuted, the church grows stronger, right? It's when the church gets cushy and comfortable that the church loses its power because then we're too worried about our comfort. We're too worried about, uh, you know, our preferences And then we lose sight of the main thing, which is the gospel. And then people look at us, and we're sitting here in our in our comfortableness and our cushiness and and they think, Well, you don't struggle at all. What like what are you gonna do when when the real world hits? And because it's so comfortable, everybody just comes in, right? People like Simon come in and they get to act however they want to act because we're too, you know, we we don't enforce church discipline and it makes the church look bad. But when persecution hits and you have to really believe what you say you believe to to claim this, suddenly the church is strong. And so the church will not be persecuted into non-existence. The Holy Spirit bolsters us when this happens and he makes us strong. So if you happen to be someone who experiences real persecution, do not be afraid. Persecution is inevitable for those who are being faithful, but the mission of God is unstoppable. Number two, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Romans 1, 16 says that the gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel is. People aren't going to get saved because you're a good person. They're just not. They're not going to get saved because you're a generous person. They're not going to get saved because you go to church every once in a while or all the time. People are not going to get saved because you do things that, I mean, non-Christians do all the time. Have you ever met a non-Christian that went to church? I have met a lot of them. People are going to get saved because you share the good news of the gospel with them, period. Proclaim it. Explain it contextualize it, make it known to the people around you. Proclaim the gospel. Number three, live it intentionally. Live it within gospel, live with the gospel intentionally. Intentionality. Each believer is called to ministry. Every believer. Like I think we have this tendency when a pastor says, I'm called to ministry. It's a bit of a misnomer, all right, because every believer is called to ministry. All right, listen to this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. All right, Fast forward a little bit in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ. So we all have a ministry. Each and every one of us who proclaim the name of Christ have a ministry. And it is our job to do that ministry wherever God has placed us. And I have said over and over again that God gave you the interests that you have, the talents that you have. He put you to live where you live, gave you the job that you have when you are so that you can do your ministry. You have been sovereignly placed around people who need to hear the gospel. Right? And it's none of that like... Live the gospel, and when necessary, speak words. Like, that's dumb. Leave that on your pillowcase and preach the gospel to these people. And we have to be intentional with it. That is what these people did. They were persecuted. They went. And as they went, one of the commentaries that I read said that they gossiped the gospel. So everywhere they went, they had the gospel on their lips. And that's what they talked about as they went. Right? They've got people chasing them down and they're preaching the gospel as they go. Lastly, number four, beware of going through the motions of salvation. It is so easy to make a profession of faith, to be baptized, to take communion, and to not have a relationship with Christ. Like, I mean, I've heard stories of pastors coming to faith in Jesus after one of their own sermons. I mean, it happens, right? Luke says that Simon believed and that he was baptized. But the little bit of his life that we have access to doesn't seem to show that there was any legitimacy to his faith. He wasn't changed. And so as we go forward, right, we need to be checking our hearts to make sure that we are in Christ. Right? Matthew 7, at the very end of that chapter, is one of the scariest things that, as a pastor, I mean, it haunts me at night sometimes, where it talks about all the people that will go before God one day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, and it's more power than I've ever held in my life, right? We cast out demons in your name. We did all this in your name. I've never cast out a demon. They've done it in his name. And he looks at him and says, I never knew you. We need to make sure that we are solid in our faith. And not someone like Simon who sees something, has an emotional response to it, goes through the motions, gets baptized, and then has no relationship with Jesus after that. So beware of going through the motions of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you grateful for the work of Philip and all these believers who, even in the face of severe persecution, they were willing to gossip the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our role in ministry, whatever that may be, that you would help us to see that we have people around us that you have sovereignly put there that need our ministry. They need to hear the gospel from us. And you have put us in their life for that purpose. Give us bravery. Give us hope. Give us joy. Help us to show them that there's something different in our life from their life, Lord, and help help us show them that they need that. And by the Holy Spirit's power, Lord, help their lives change as they come to faith, as we pursue them with the gospel and Lord if there's anybody here today who thinks that they're saved but doesn't have that right relationship with you Lord I pray that today is the day that you make it perfectly clear to them that they need you that that relationship that they think they have with you is not real like Simon who went through the motions but didn't have everything lined up the way he was supposed to Lord help them see the truth about their heart Lord, help them come to faith in you today. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I beg this of you. In Jesus' name, amen.